You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. We're going to continue our study in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We're going to walk through every single verse and all three, ch- just kidding. We're going to walk through the verses that Jamie read us, and honestly, we're not going to spend a lot of time in all of the verses in chapter 3. Um, this week, we are continuing our origin study. Last week, Pastor Michael walked us through God's design for humanity. This week, we're going to work through God's design for work. Um, and then next week, I'll let Michael handle the hard stuff when it comes to um, Genesis 3 in the fall. Um, so if you have any questions about my sermon, as he's sold me out in the past, Michael at tccannarbor.com is where you send those questions, and he will be glad to, um, to handle those for you. Uh, but we are going to be working through God's design for work. It's a really important factor for our lives, not just as a church and as Christians, but also outside of our worship on Sunday. So how does Genesis 1 through 3 apply to my theology of work? Maybe that's the question you're asking. If it's not, that's okay. We're going to get there. Maybe another way to say this is how should my understanding of Genesis 1 through 3 and the entirety of the Scriptures for that matter um, inform how I work while in the world, but not of the world, as the scriptures say, right? Is my work important? Is what you do in your vocation important to God? Does it really matter how you and I conduct ourselves throughout the week when we're not at church on Sunday? Unfortunately, we as Christians have often separated our faith from work historically and in modern day time. Um, in fact, we almost don't even notice we do it throughout a daily basis. Um, why is this? Where's the breakdown? What's the problem? What, why, why do we make this false dichotomy between work and worship? Is, is my work important? Will we say that the work that we do on a daily basis is not connected to our faith in Christ? Would we say that? I doubt it. Certainly not, hopefully. So, why do we so often find ourselves living out this form of worldview? The famous early 20th century crime writer and poet who became a very influential Christian, um, Dorothy Sayers, says this, and you should see it on the screen, and nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of the church's life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Now, I give you this quote because I really think Miss Sayers is right. The church often has little impact to the greater working world, the vocational world that we will either find ourselves in one day or you find yourselves in now, and even your work world might be as a student. And although there's a myriad of reasons, I think, to consider why this is the case, one of the greatest reasons is that the fact that many Christians live as though their days between Sundays don't matter to God. It's as if the only part of your life that is holy is what you do here and maybe in small group on Wednesdays, but everything else in between, it's separated. 
I want to take a, a quick look at some of the history of the church. Um, the Reformers actually had a lot to say about this. And look, of course, last Sunday was Reformation Day, so falls right in line. Look, I see my fellow uh, raised Lutheran back there shaking her head. I like that. Uh, but Martin Luther had a lot to say about this, and so what I've actually done is I pulled together a synopsis of a, a well-known writer, Gene Edward Veith. He summarizes a lot of Martin Luther's works. He actually quotes also a guy named Hugh Welkel. But to kind of give you a quick synopsis of some history there with the Reformers, um, he says this, Luther was the first to use the word vocation to refer also to secular offices and occupations. So there was this problem going on. Let me explain. Veith cites Hugh Welkel and says, Christians began separating the sacred and the secular by as early as the end of the third century. Long time ago, this is what that means, okay? Influenced by the writings of early church fathers, the church siloed religious vocations in everyday work. Now, let me, let me tease that out a bit, a bit here. The, the church was teaching that vocation, secular vocation, and worship was siloed. This actually continued into the medieval era. In the medieval church, having a vocation or a calling literally referred exclusively to full-time ministry. Vocational work, uh, not secular, but sacred vocational work literally applied only to full-time vocational ministry. Veith continues and says that the division between the laity, which would be your church leadership, and the professional priesthood was stark during this time period. The idea of the priesthood of all believers that we see prominent in the New Testament was fully marginalized. It wasn't discussed much. It wasn't taught much. It certainly wasn't lived out. It was, it was from this context, by the way, that our great Martin Luther began to rediscover a biblical theology of vocation. This is the, content, the context in which he was writing from. Hugh Welkel comments, Such an artificial division between sacred and secular has not always prevailed. The Reformers taught that all labor, labor is noble if it is accepted as a calling and performed as unto the Lord. This truth has slipped dramatically in both today's church and contemporary culture. It was initially through Martin Luther's efforts that the 16th century reformers began to recover the biblical doctrine of work. Luther then argued that work is imbued with spiritual significance. In his book, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, I like that, pretty clever, pretty clever guy, he writes this, The work of monks and priests however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ on wit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured by God by faith alone. So the second generation reformers would come along, uh, John Calvin and the like, and they would continue to take Luther's ideas and build upon them. But what can we learn from all this? Why do I share all this? Is it because I want to glorify Luther and Calvin? No, we want to respect them for what they've done for the history of the church. Honestly, I want to push your mind to Christ and what God says about our vocational work and a theology of work in the scriptures. But here's what I think we can learn. It's important to see that historically the church's temptation is to separate the two. And I don't think we have to squint too hard to see that we're tempted to do the same thing. We are tempted to live as if Monday is totally separate from today. My exhortation to us all as we work through these passages today is that the Bible has a lot to say about our work. God has a lot to say. The Word of God should dictate our theology as we seek to honor Him in the workplace. The Word of God should ensure that it is influencing what we do Monday to Saturday. And so let's work through a biblical framework. 
Now that we've taken a quick glance of history, um, we're going to look at Genesis 1.28. Uh, Stuart Briscoe says this, Remember that paradise was not a vacation. The paradise of the garden was not a vacation. It was a vocation. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So there's this idea, there's, there's four verbs at play, fruitful and multiplication and filling and subduing, right? God's creation of humankind not only came with the important foundational uh, distinction that Pastor Michael shared with us last week, that we're made in God's image, but it also came with a responsibility. We're made in God's image and we have responsibility. God's blessing in this verse included the function that was assigned to humanity. What's the first function? Glad you asked. Genesis 1.28. We see that answered. There's, there's a couple aspects at play here. The first, which is probably going to be the most notable and often, and I think unfortunately, the only aspect that is referenced by most people. And the first aspect is well defined by uh, Alan Ross in his commentary. He says that human life, male and female, thus has a great capacity and responsibility by virtue of being the image of God. First, humans may produce life, their own spiritual, physical life. If humans are to imitate God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. A man and a woman can produce a living soul by God's grace in his image. This is a part of the blessing and the responsibility. To be fruitful and to multiply absolutely included childbirth. We like babies. We got a lot of them, right? We're going to dedicate one today. We're grateful for that. So that's really important. An important part of being fruitful and multiplying is having babies. Now, let me caveat here for a really important piece of this. In light of the fall, we recognize and are very empathetic, not only to the challenges of childbirth for our ladies, but also to the challenge of infertility. That, that's a real challenge. And it's something that we as the church can't overlook and should seek to be ministers of grace when given opportunities. So, so there's a real challenge of infertility. And that's why I think, in addition to what I think the, the scriptures teach, this is not just talking about having babies. It, it can't just mean that. There, there's so much more to it. One of the basic functions given to the human race by God is to multiply their offspring on the earth. And as important as this is, does this capture all that we believe the Bible teaches us in regards to being fruitful and multiplying? Is it a sin to remain celibate? Are you somehow not fulfilling God's full calling for your life in the image of God if you don't yet have children? Or that you are unable to have children? I want to think through this. A couple of things I'll point out. I can't remember if I put it on the PowerPoint, but that's okay. Number one, Jesus was never married, nor did he ever have children. And he himself actually says celibacy is a choice. Um, see, there's that, right? Secondly, uh, Paul actually somewhat encourages singleness. Now, look, I'm not, as one of your pastors, telling you marriage is bad. It's good. I love my wife, and I love my children, and I love marriage, and God has instituted an ordained marriage, and it's a good thing. However, ask my wife any day of the week. She would love to serve and seek out and do whatever any of you needed. But to be a wife and a mother is also now a part of who she is. And she joyfully serves in those ways. So Paul talks about this idea that there is a challenge in marriage 
that you wouldn't otherwise have. And then third, we've already mentioned it, infertility. If a woman struggles with infertility, is she in sin? Is she somehow not carrying out the image of God? Now, the initial question, does childbirth capture all that God had in mind when he told us to be fruitful and multiply? And here's my answer to the question, if I have already not made it very clear to you. My answer is an emphatic no, absolutely not. Is it an important part? Yes. Is it the only part? No. What are the other aspects going on here? It's, it, it can't just simply be filling the earth with more image bearers. What else should you see? There also seems to be an, an additional element in regards to being spiritually fruitful and multiplying. Spiritually fruitful, spiritually multiplying, spiritually filling in regards to the work of the gospel. There, there's, it's not hard to see traces of Matthew 28 here. Okay, Go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them, spiritually multiplying. That is, that is the Great Commission plan, to multiply people in the kingdom of God spiritually. It ultimately brings about the multiplication of the citizens of God's kingdom. We are called to be spiritually fruitful, right? Another aspect I think that's really important to see, and and, um, Tim Keller really helps us think through this. We'll look at this here in a little bit. But we, as his creation, are entrusted and equipped by God to be his ambassadors in the work of bringing his creation to fulfillment. Now, this is pretty neat. I don't think this is talked enough about in the church. God has chosen us to take part in his work on this earth. Not just giving birth, not just in making disciples, but also in taking part of human society. Through our work and the cooperation of God, what does he do? He brings good works. He brings knowledge. He brings services. He brings beauty and health and technology. The first function given to us is all-encompassing. All of it is included spiritually, physically, and it should be done unto the Lord. So if we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill, why do we separate that from our faith in Christ? I'm going to keep asking that question for a reason because I want you to think about it. So the scriptures say be fruitful and multiply and fill, but I want to look at the last verb here because most of the time this verb is separated from the other three. It's kind of weird. The, the third is subdue. There's a more detailed uh, focus of the specifics of what this looks like outlined in the latter part of verse 28 all the way down to verse 31. Uh, we're not going to spend time on that for the purpose of our study this morning, but I want to focus on the word subdue. So there's this idea of dominion, right? to be over, to be in control of. But let's dig deeper. How does this play out? Wayne Grudem says this, that the Hebrew word here for subdue is kabosh. It has a fuller meaning, to make useful for human beings' benefit and enjoyment. In other words, God's image bearers are to go and make it possible to increase flourishing in God's creation, to subdue the earth for God's glory. Notice it's, it's always about God. Not just to subdue the earth physically, but to subdue the earth for God's glory. As we'll see shortly in Genesis 3, I'm going to reference it today, and then Pastor Michael will work through it next week. Genesis 3, because of the fall, we were actually rendered incapable of fulfilling this out in the manner in which we were originally called to. Um, And so Christ, through his grace, helps us do that. And one day we will be able to do that uh, perfectly, the way he designed it. Uh, But that won't be until he returns. Um, So the fall has significantly affected our ability to do this. In fact, you can see the results of this play out in a variety of ways throughout our experience and throughout the history 
of the church. I'll just mention a couple here. Firstly, many have used this very passage in the history of the church to defend the conquering and the commandeering and the using of creation to fulfill the sinful and selfish purposes of man. They see this word subdue as power, and they utilize it for selfish gain. That's not at all what Genesis has in mind here. Does that mean that you never benefit from subduing? Of course not. God wants what's best for you. He's a a loving father. But that is not the goal of subduing. Secondly, and we've already touched on this, we often live practically as if our everyday work life is separate from our life of worship and devotion to God. So our temptation to do this has to be put to death in the words of Paul. Subduing can't just mean physically subduing something. It has to have a greater meaning. It becomes this diminishing of the subdue aspect to merely refer to the physical. So if we've established that the fruitful and the multiply and the filling piece is more than just physical and has a spiritual aspect, why do we typically see the subdue piece of the command as merely physical? It's crazy. It makes no sense. It's not separate. It's in the same verse, literally. Why do we separate be fruitful and multiplying and filling from the subduing? It's as if when we read this verse, we walk away and create this weird, invisible barrier between the spiritual and the physical. It's weird. Couldn't be further from the truth as laid out in the whole of Scriptures and grounded in Genesis. There is no sacred and secular. Despite what you may be tempted to, to live out, despite what you may have been taught, I'm here to disagree with anyone that's ever taught you that, not based on Chris, because Lord have mercy, don't trust just Chris. But I'm giving you this based on God's Word. There is no separation between the sacred and the sec- sec- secular. There is no such thing, actually. So, Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, says, We are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative, cultural development. That's really important in what you do every day. That's really important in what you are going to do every day. To circle back to exactly what Martin Luther was battling in the 16th century, we mustn't separate the spiritual from the secular. Although I doubt any of you would argue this morning that the quote-unquote secular is sinful or inherently bad, how often do we live as if it's unimportant? Like a means to an end. Ah, oh, I just got to get through my work day. Ah, oh, I hate my job. My boss is so difficult to deal with. So-and-so's behind. Man, I'm tired and I don't feel like going to work today. Whatever it is. Charles Spurgeon said, To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular, everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it's a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it's a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor, and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense, and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence to draw a hard and fast line and say, this is sacred and this is secular, is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of gospel. I think that is 100% correct, but yet we live so differently than this. Ministry of the gospel is not the spiritual and our work the secular. That is not a biblical concept. 
There is no divide, and we cannot separate them. Everything we do is either filling or subduing, and they both serve as an incredibly important part of carrying out God's design for our lives as well as our mission to carry out the Great Commission. When done unto the Lord, your work is just as important as me standing before you and exhorting you through the Scriptures. This is not more important than what you will do on Monday when done unto the Lord. Hear me clearly. Nancy Piercy writes in her book, Total Truth, the promise of Christianity is the joy and power of an integrated life, transformed on every level by the Holy Spirit so that our whole being participates in the great drama of God's plan of redemption. Now, we've fleshed out the first function given to humankind. Look at verse 15 in chapter 2. Our job requisition is further defined. Here's what it says. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, this is not Missy Elliott's work it, all right? It's not the same thing. Don't, don't mince the words. God says, work it and keep it. What does that mean? It's a pretty straightforward short verse. What does that mean? Now you're all humming that song. I'm really sorry I did that to you. Here in chapter 2, man is given an even more specific task. These two Hebrew words actually have various translations by many. I'll list out a few. Cultivate or work and keep. Tend and watch. Guard and protect. Serve and protect. Worship and obey. So how should we translate these and how do they inform our life? Now, some of you may not know this. I'm a Hebrew scholar. Just kidding. I'm not at all a Hebrew scholar. And so I will say this. Um, I'm going to encourage you to do your own study. All of these translations, they're good. They're given by some very well-respected and very well-studied Hebrew scholars, and so they're all good. It's, it's clear that in the garden, God did not create humankind to be idle, to sit around and do nothing, but ultimately to have pleasant work. Work was not the result of the fall. We'll talk through this in just a minute. Work was always there. So back to the translation. I thought what I'd do this morning, whether you care or not, you're stuck with me, uh, is to tell you the two of the translations that I am most fond of, and I'll tease them out. The first of these is to tend and to watch, or to take care of and to watch. When translating it like this, it carries this idea that we should work and serve and cultivate, as well as to protect what God has created. We should take great care over what the Lord has given us dominion over. There's all sorts of implications here. Creation care, stewardship of all things, right? We have been given the opportunity to partner with God to work and to care for his creation as he brings it to its future redemption. And although this context supports the physical aspect, so we shouldn't not look at the physical aspect, it certainly does include the physical aspect of working and protecting. There's a much greater calling at play here. Physically and spiritually, tending and watching what God has given us access to, right? The one that I'm probably most fond of is worship and obey. In the work of John Selhammer, he's a very well-known commentator, there are objections to merely translating these two words as to tend and to watch. He carries his thought out that a better rendering of this uh, is to worship and obey. Listen to his thought process. So the Garden of Eden is this perfect place to worship God and all that was done. It was like this roofless temple. I think he even says that. So in this view, man is the priest 
And this place in the garden is the temple, and we are to worship God and obey in all of the tasks of life. And this would carry itself throughout into the New Testament, as we mentioned in Hebrews, right? The priesthood of all believers. So he was the first priest, if you will, to worship and obey God in all that he does. Dr. Salhammer would carry this out to support some other ideas in the Genesis uh, part of things like the narrative of the Imago Dei and the theme of worship and creation and Sabbath rest. Now, I've kind of given you my two that I'm most fond of, but let me kind of summarize the theology here because um, I'm going to leave. You're smart people, and a lot of you are very smart, much smarter than me. You certainly can speak better than me um, as you hear my uh, English. But with these things in mind, I want to flesh out the greater theology, and, and here's what it is. When God gave this command to all of humanity, it was all-encompassing and calls us to do all things out of our worship and obedience to him. It removes the false barrier, and I'm being repetitive purposely, between the sacred and the secular, and demands that all areas of our life, including vocation, relationships, decisions, thoughts, everything we do to be done out of a desire to worship God and further his kingdom. It leaves no stone unturned in our hearts and presses into the temptation to believe and act as if our work is a means to an end. Church, instead, work has incredible meaning. There should even be worship in the mundane. Let that sink in. Work is good, and it was instituted by God. Something about work ensures that we are carrying out the whole image of God. Work matters now to God, and by the way, it will matter to God in his future kingdom. Work allows us to use the gifts and talents the Lord has given us to bring about good for his glory. Our work provides an opportunity to serve others and to conduct, others, conduct ourselves with others with ethics and morality. That's a way that we honor God in our work. Our work provides an incredible opportunity to strengthen the witness of the gospel in the church and the workforce. I, I can tell you from experience, man, I would give anything to see a greater push in this area. One of, the, one of the greatest attractors of the gospel is how Christians carry themselves out in the workplace. Much more could be said, but our work as a Christian is not a means to an end. It has immeasurable worth and meaning, and it matters to God. And church, this, this even goes for those jobs that you might be working right now that you're not going to be in forever. It matters. God has placed you there for a reason. Trust that he's placed you there and see the bigger picture of honoring God, worshiping and obeying God in the vocation that he's giving you. That's where he's called you to be. Some of you have started a new job recently. Some of you will start a new job. Some of you have been in a job for a long time. Some of you are preparing to be in a job. Maybe you work a part-time job. Some of you, your full-time job is your study and some extracurricular activities. Whatever the vocation God has called you to, the scriptures say worship and obey him in that. Represent Christ well. Prayerfully seek him and ask him to help you live out what he has entrusted you to. Let's move into chapter 3. I'll briefly touch on the result of man after he fell and sin entered the world. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. I'm going to read it again if you'll humor me. Jamie did a wonderful job, so um, I technically don't have to, but I just like to read the Scriptures. He says this, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken from your, you are dust, to dust you shall return. Now, I've already referenced that Pastor Michael is going to deal with all the hard parts of this passage next week. So stay tuned, stick for six, at least stick for next week, because he'll work you through all of it, and you'll walk away much better for it. Uh, But let me give you a quick summary of what just happened here. First, it says the serpent was cursed above all animals on its belly, eating dust. We do learn later in Genesis that this is Satan. Secondly, there will be ultimate destruction of the serpent by the wounded seed of the woman. Enter Jesus, right? Jesus was wounded on the cross. Jesus overcame death. One day he will return. So that's the wounded seed of the woman. Thirdly, pain and childbearing for the woman and a desire to rule over the man. And then fourthly, man will have to work to eat. You've got to work to eat. And there will be pain and toil in the work. Now, I bet you can't guess which one I'm going to focus on. The easy one. I don't have time to work through all of it, nor, nor do I need to. As I said, Michael will work through this next week. But I want to look at, really, verses 17 through 19. The ground is cursed. You will eat of it in pain and toil. And by, and, and by the toil and then the sweat of your face, you'll eat, basically. At this point, something has changed. We see sin enters the world, and we kind of walk through the interaction of what happened because man chose to disobey God. But more specifically, let's look at how work has changed. And the change is not that work has appeared. I referenced this a little earlier. Work has always been. It it always existed. It was given by God in His image. But something has changed related to work. The nature of work has changed. Work was once pleasurable, and now it's difficult. It's labor. It's toil. It wasn't described as this prior to the fall. Bob Utley, in his commentary, How It All Begins, says that the ground will no longer produce freely and abundantly. The current earth is not what God intended. We see that in Romans. The earth is groaning to be redeemed. It's not just humanity that fell. It was... The earth, too. He says, The task of labor, the task of work that was once given as a sign of man's dominion has now become tiresome and wearisome and repetitive and mandatory and never-ending. You ever feel like that? Like sometimes when I read things, like I kind of want to just like lay down on the floor like my three-year-old and just have a temper tantrum. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I could demonstrate it for you here, but I feel like it'd be too distracting. But like, I feel like that about work, especially as of late in my own personal experience. It's just wearisome. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should not be surprised, church, when we encounter difficulty and toil in our vocation. This experience finds its roots all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Work is no longer a blissful task. Work is now an opportunity for evil to make an appearance. 
It's an opportunity for sin to show its ugly head. How do we see this? Harvest will fail and will be weak. The workplace, goodness gracious, the workplace will eat its own young. And it will literally diminish the importance of the individual in the Imago Dei to climb the corporate ladder. Technology will fail. My computer crashed Wednesday evening preparing this manuscript, and I got to redo about three-quarters of it. I was worshiping God the whole time, I can assure you. It's probably better for me as I look back, honestly, if I'm honest with you, but I certainly wouldn't have prayed for that. Things will fail, um, even self-inflicted. We're without heat this weekend because I was installing something exactly the way the company asked me to do it, and it broke, period. We had no heat in the Woods household. Thank God for 60 today and tomorrow. And, and I did it the way that I was supposed to do it. And the contractor I called, he was like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even mess with that company anymore. I sued them for millions of dollars. And I'm like, oh, well, I sh- wish I'd have known that before I tried to install the equipment. That being said, like, it's hard. Like, it was hard to crawl back behind my boiler and do all. I was just, I, I'm not a boiler guy. You know what I mean? I don't want to do that. Like, whatever that even is, it's hard. It's wearisome. It's toil. And it didn't work. And I think I messed something up. It's going to cost me some money. So we're going to take up a love offering. And I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't know how much it's going to cost me. But like that's a result. All jokes aside, that's a result of, of the fall. Like, like work is not, that's not fun. It's not blissful. It's not pleasurable. It's not the way God designed it. In God's economy, all boilers would work forever. Right? It'll be like that, church, until Jesus does what Revelation 21 says. Until Christ returns, work will be hard. It will be toilsome. But don't miss the end of chapter 3. There's a glimpse of God's grace that never, ever fails. You see him taking the life of the first sacrificial animal, and he literally makes garments for them so that they are covered. And although there was consequences for sin, we recognize that this side of heaven. They were sent out of the garden, mind, mind you. God sends them out covered and protected And he begins a redemption plan that is infused with grace throughout all the pages of Scripture. The plan would climax with the bruising of the seed's heel, Jesus' crucifixion, the great sacrifice of Christ. And this plan would culminate with the resurrection of the bruised seed and the second coming of the risen Christ as he returns to redeem and correct all that is his. That includes those that know him as Savior and call him Lord and his creation. He will redeem it all. So although there's difficulty in work, there is grace that surpasses the difficulty. There is meaning in your work and there is grace that abounds. The Lord will empower us through the Holy Spirit to live a life of holiness in our work. It's not just important, but it's demanded. It's empowered And it ultimately brings God's glory. Holiness and work is not just demanded, it's empowered, but it's ultimately for God's glory and for our good. You know, as a personal testimony and maybe even a little glimpse of kind of how our church is structured here, Michael and I talked through this. He felt like it might be a good idea for me to teach this, not because he couldn't have taught this passage because he's a great um, exegeter of the text, but um, some of you may know this. I, uh, I have the same desire to separate the sacred and secular in my own life. 
um, because I'm a lay pastor for TCC. What does that mean? You may be thinking, I don't know what that means. That's okay. It means that I don't take an income from the church, and yet I carry the same pastoral responsibilities as, as Michael. Um, I don't carry the weight during the week that Michael and other staff do. Praise God for that. Um, what do I do? I actually sit around. I'm a solitaire champion. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not really good at solitaire. I have a job in the corporate world. That's what I do on a daily basis. So if you send me an email or text me and I can't respond back as quickly, I promise you it's not because I hate you. I love you. But I'm, I'm balancing things just like a lot of you are balancing things throughout your week. And so um, I obviously do not have the same daily responsibilities, same pastoral responsibilities. But although my work as a pastor for TCC is really, really important, it's not the only important part of my vocation. My work in the corporate world is just as important as what we do here on Sundays and Wednesdays. There is no separation between that for me. There can't be. There just absolutely can't be. The temptation to believe and act as if my weekday vocation is not as important as my task here on Sunday, it's a real temptation. In fact, that temptation is common to all of us. And I'm forewarning you and exhorting you to ask God to help you with this because you will experience it if you have not already. What Michael and I do is important, but what I do is not more important. What he does is not more important than the calling of your vocation. And God wants to be intricately involved in that because he loves you and cares for you. In his article, Work, Cursed, and Redeemed, uh, Gospel Coalition writer Bob Thune Give some very biblical and practical ways God can be glorified in our work. Um, you'll see them on the screen. It's really little. I'll read them if you want to take a picture of that. That's fine. We'll also be uh, having your small group leaders. There's a couple articles Michael ran across. I'll be sending those out to our small group leaders with some discussion questions for small group this week. So you can go and read a couple of these things. There's plenty out there on work. Um, so none of this is by any means my thoughts. But God is glorified when we put our whole selves into our work with a view towards pleasing God, not man. God is glorified when we are honest, even when it hurts us or prevents us from getting ahead. God is glorified when we honor our superiors and submit to their authority. God is glorified when we treat our work associates with kindness and respect. God is glorified when we expose fraud or dishonesty or unethical behavior. God is glorified when we approach our work prayerfully. God is glorified when we avoid complaining or grumbling, even in less than ideal work situations. God is glorified when we refuse to make work and money, our idols. God is glorified when we plan diligently for the future. God is glorified when we live simply and give generously. God is glorified when we trust him to provide today what we need for, for today. God is glorified when we rest from our work. Church, we are called to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill and subdue. We're called to tend and to watch and to worship and obey, and we should not be surprised when our work is toilsome and difficult. These are commands and realities of the Scriptures, and we should not separate them from our work when it comes to walking in faith and holiness. You know, it's interesting. We can easily place our desire to be successful at work, the praise of man, the money we make, the position we have, the passions. Oh, this is a big one. The world says, follow your heart. It's your passions. That's your pursuit. You hear that all the time, I'm sure. Is your passion unimportant? Nope. Is providing for your family unimportant? Nope. But if you place your passion or your career climb 
or what you want to do over what God has called you to do and over glorifying him, it's totally out of order. And I can assure you it will lead to destruction. So church, do not separate your vocation from faith and holiness in Christ. May we see our vocation as an intricate part of our worship to God and an opportunity to bring him glory. And may we ask the Lord to help us in that task. Let's pray.